It was a normal day, like every day. This is Karen Gross. She's 42 years old. She lives in Berlin. And on the 7th of March, 2018, she got a phone call from her 14-year-old daughter, Kyra. And um, she said to me, OK, Mama, I'm at home. Please give me a call when you're coming back home. Uh, when I finished work, I was in the car and I phoned her, but she didn't answer. And then I was entering the apartment and uh, the living room door was um, closed. That was unusual. And so I searched my daughter. I was going to her room. She was not in there. And then I entered the living room and saw her sitting in front of the couch, um, gagged with a scarf full of blood. I was um, calling the emergency, and the emergency told me what I have to do for reanimation her. And so I started to reanimate her till the emergency doctor arrived. When the emergency doctor arrived, I have to leave the room. I was going in the bathroom, sitting there. And after 90 minutes, they stopped the machines, and someone was coming to me and told me, your daughter is dead. This is BBC Trending, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at social media and online culture. I'm Mike Wendling, and in this edition, we're investigating how a brutal murder became an online rallying cry for the far right in Germany. That is, until the truth about what really happened came out. Ant Dean is our reporter. He's been to Berlin, and he spoke to Karen Gross. Hi, Mike. And we heard from Karen at the beginning there. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about her daughter, the victim? Well, Kyra was a popular, charismatic girl, already an ice skating star in Berlin at just 14 years old, and she lived at home alone with her mother, Karen. And when Karen arrived home and found Kyra, stabbed more than 20 times, she became a chief witness to her daughter's murder. So the next day I was on the police department, and I make the testimonial. Uh, I was sitting there 10 hours, because I, I wanted like this. I want to say everything what I have seen because I was the only one who have seen her before the, the emergency doctor was there. So nobody else can tell what I have seen. In the days that followed, she continued to work closely with the police. She went to the ice skating hall where Kyra had practised and laid flowers outside. She lit two candles and thanked people for their condolences. And then I get the call, Mrs Gross, we have him. We have the killer of your daughter. You can come to the department and we can talk about this. The first question was, what is his name? And they told me, and I was really shocked because I didn't know him personally, but I heard much about him. And even Kyra, she has photos in her room from him. And she always speaks about him like her brother. And they have a relationship she was a little bit in love with him, but they were not together. He was 15. And that was unbelievable for me. Even the police told me this was an absolutely senseless death. Absolutely senseless. While the police informed Karen of their discoveries, people on social media particularly from the far right, were beginning to conduct an investigation of their own. 
and it wasn't long after Kyra had been murdered that the hashtags about her began. Well, it only took hours, and there were posts with the hashtag Kira on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, by far-right actors. This is Oliver Saal. He's a researcher and social media consultant for the Amadeu Antonio Foundation, an organisation that works to strengthen society against neo-Nazism, right-wing extremism and anti-Semitism. He and his colleagues tracked how Kyra's death was exploited by the far-right on social media. For the far-right, social media is a potent tool for bypassing so-called mainstream media, for connecting people of a similar political persuasion around the world, and for spreading misinformation that reinforces prejudiced beliefs. And it wasn't long after Kyra had been murdered that the hashtags about her began. First uh, tweets and posts appeared about the case, um, suggesting that immigrants would have committed this crime. It's a narrative that's both old and new. New because there's a contemporary timeline that these far-right activists cleave to, claiming that Germany has become more dangerous since Angela Merkel the German Chancellor, accepted hundreds of thousands of refugees in the summer of 2015. New, because they are emboldened by the success of the far-right Alternative for Germany, who entered German Parliament as the third biggest party in September 2017. And old, very old, because the fear of strangers from foreign lands coming to rape and pillage is a story that's been exploited for political gain for almost as long as humanity has existed. While there has been an increase in migrant crime since 2015, some researchers put this down to the high proportion of refugees who are young and male. Young men commit more crimes than any other demographic. Overall, crime in Germany has fallen to its lowest level since 1992. There's a 2.5% decrease in violent crime between 2016 and 2017. But that didn't stop Kyra's murder from being swiftly laced into a highly charged narrative. Oliver Saal again. The perpetrator was still unknown, and they knew it, but it had to be a non-German who did this, supposedly because Kira has been murdered with a knife, and uh, far-right actors claimed no German would ever do such a thing as that, that the death of Kira was in consequence Angela Merkel's fault because she did not close the German borders against immigrants. So, immediately after Kyra's murder, there was a wave of politically charged speculation online. We see this again and again after big news events, crime, terror attacks. Rumors and sometimes outright fake news flood social media. And what happened next? Well, four days after the murder, the police said they'd arrested a suspect, a 15-year-old from Kyra's circle of acquaintances. Neither his ethnic background nor religious affiliation were reported. Yet posts about this normal police procedure exploded across blogs, Twitter accounts and Facebook pages. There were posts on the far-right magazine Compact and the blog PI News. There was an AFD state representative in the Berlin Parliament tweeting at the police to ask why the perpetrator's origin had not been made public. The apparent lack of detail about the suspect's background fed into a narrative that the so-called establishment, so that's the police, the media... Angela Merkel and her fellow politicians are not only complicit in the alleged uptick in crime, but are actively covering it up. This is how the routine functioning of civil society can get translated into conspiracy. 
one man was playing a major role in this and his name is Lutz Bachmann. Lutz Bachmann is a major social media influencer for the far right in Germany. He's the man who found the Pegida marches in Dresden. Pegida, or the Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the Occident, is a nationalist, anti-Islam, far-right group. And Lutz Bachmann is its founder. In the aftermath of Kyra's murder, he posted something online. Lutz Bachmann uh, announced he had found the alleged suspect and put pictures of him online and... Um, Well, the, it was like the whole far-right um, internet sphere was going wild and um, spreading rumors. Buckman included the boy's full name. He provided a link to his Facebook profile. He called him in this post the murderer of Kira and named him the beast from the Caucasus. Bachmann claimed the boy would be Muslim and former immigrant. Caucasus was very likely a reference to Chechnya, a republic of Russia which figures on the far right often cite as a source of Muslim immigrants to Germany. The culprit, as far as some were concerned, had been found. Except he hadn't, because the 15-year-old beast from the Caucasus that Bachmann had found online was not responsible for Kyra's murder. The point is, the young man he pictured had absolutely no connection to Kira or the whole case. He only fitted into the worldview of Bachmann, a worldview where crimes against young women can only be committed by young Muslim and men. The boy removed his profile picture and other information so that he could no longer be easily targeted online. We tried to contact Lutz Bachmann through Pegida. A spokesperson for Pegida said they had no interest in speaking and they put us on their spam list. The posts online by the far right were so wide of the mark that the police were forced to reply online, posting a picture of Bachmann's tweet with fake written across it. The truth, in many ways, was much stranger. Up next, we'll find out who did commit the murder and what really happened, and hear how the effects of the misinformation spread online would continue to be felt long after the suspect's arrest. My name is Roland Weber. I'm working here as a criminal lawyer in the city of Berlin. A few days after Kyra's murder, Karen Gross got in touch with Weber. I visited his office in Berlin to speak with him. This case was for me was like a puzzle. We had many little pieces and then I could see step by step the picture more clearly what happened here. It wasn't the boy targeted on social media who'd been arrested. It wasn't a Muslim immigrant from Chechnya. It was a white German church-going teenager who had come to be known in the media as Hannes. First, um, he told the police a special story. He said that um, the daughter of my client wanted to make suicide. And she begged him to, to, to do this for her. But it quickly became clear that this story was not credible. Her behaviour with her friends and family in the days before she died did little to suggest that she'd been planning to kill herself. Her calendar was filled with plans she'd made for the coming weeks and months. 
and as the investigation proceeded, a different picture of what had happened began to emerge, one which suggested there was a far greater degree of premeditation in Hannes's actions than he'd first let on. And while teachers described him as a friendly, popular boy, there was a very different side to his personality. In his whole young life, he tried to find real friends. And he also had some friends, but it wasn't sure if they are real friends or just a little more than just classmates. One day he decided, if I can't have real friends, maybe it's better if I'm the bad guy, if I'm the joker, the, the opposite player to Batman. Hannes told his friends about something called the Joker Clan, a group of his own making based on the villainous Joker from Batman. The court verdict observed that he did this to appear interesting, but also that he seemed to develop an affinity towards the fictional character. And then he started to make his hair green and he took some white colour in his face to look like the Joker. He played with Joker cards in the classroom and he told to the other pupils that he's in a special um, Joker clan and therefore he is not allowed to have sympathetic feelings to other people. He must be a bad guy and so he has to try out how it is if he killed somebody. He had chosen Kyra as his victim because she was in love with him. It meant she was less likely to be suspicious. And, and in the end, all of us, not only the judges, also my client and me, we were very sure that he just did it for fun to see how it is when somebody is dying. His actions after the murder suggest a chilly detachment. He took Kyra's phone so there'd be no sign of the WhatsApp messages they'd exchanged and travelled to a nearby lake. It was partially frozen, so he threw the phone from the north shore where the ice had thawed. He went home and returned the knife to the block in his parents' kitchen and then he turned on his computer and began to play League of Legends. I think this was the hardest thing in the world I have ever been through. This is Karen talking about seeing Hannes in court. Because um, till now I didn't get any regrets or any apologise, uh, even not from his family, nothing, nothing. Even when they were talking about what he has done, he didn't apologise, he didn't regret he talks about, like, stealing a car, that he has murdered a person, a human, nothing. Hannes received a juvenile sentence of nine years for murder. He's said to have coped relatively well during his initial detainment. He makes wooden toys for children in the workshop. He receives a visit every fortnight from his mother. He attends church on Sundays. Imagine... I was a single parent, always, and every evening I'm sitting in my apartment alone. Every day, from this day on. For me, the, the whole life has changed from one, one moment of the other. You can't prepare. I can't even say goodbye to my daughter. I have no chance to, to, to tell her I love you. To, to lost your child is the hardest thing in, 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 or the worst thing um, you can imagine, but justice in my case will never be. 
because in 10 years or in five years or in six years, it uh, doesn't matter when, he is free. So justice for me? Mm -mm. There's no justice. It's a real tragic story. But Ernst, what was the fallout of all of those fake rumors and the social media speculation by the far right? Well, a Berlin police spokesperson told the press that they had, quote, never experienced a murder case being politically exploited in such a way. And although much of this exploitation took place in the online sphere, there were real-life consequences. Not only for the boy who was falsely accused of the murder, who was harassed online, but also for Karen... This is partly due to a key strategy of the far right on social media, to frame events in terms of impending disaster. It's a false idea of crisis, of imminent downfall, and it helps create an artificial need for action. Here's Oliver Saal again from the Amadeu Antonio Foundation. If you only inform yourself uh, with the far-right media outlets or via social media within a far-right echo chamber, uh, you will get the impression, you must get the impression that the whole country of Germany is a place um, full of crime, kind of like on the brink to civil war. And then there is only one solution for them, and that is resistance against the whole system. What can you do to resist such a system? Small acts such as uh, liking the AFD on social media, or trolling other political parties, or um, voting for the far right in elections, or even beating immigrants in the streets. Or, perhaps, desecrating a grave. Ah, I have to cut them. On an icy January day, I went with Karen to the cemetery where Kyra is buried. She comes here almost every day. And while she trimmed the leaves of an orange rose... Karen told me that one day, a few months after Kyra's death, she found something surprising on her daughter's gravestone. So in summertime, I always come here to, to make new flowers around and to see if everything is, is okay. And I was finished with the flowers and um, almost I go around, make the candles new and everything like that. And I go to the backside of, of this gravestone and um, on this side here, there was the name of the murderer and that he is a Russian. It was, it was here on, on the back side with a blue printer. Russian. Someone had written it on the grave. A reference, in all likelihood, to the false story spread about the supposed Chechen Muslim suspect, the beast from the Caucasus. It was like a, like a shock for me because uh, I never think about that that uh, there would be someone who who writes something on a gravestone and the gravestone was new it was just four weeks here and um, after four weeks that the, that someone writes the name of the killer on on, on the backside of, of my daughter's gravestone it was horrible to see she tried to get rid of it with water but it didn't work I take the nail polish remover from from home come back here and uh, sitting two hours here to every time to, to try to make it away. Although most of Karen's interactions with strangers following her daughter's murder have been positive, there have been some negative incidents. Some have approached her on Facebook to try to procure items of Kyra's clothing. Another person wouldn't leave her alone when she was trying to tend to her daughter's grave. And in this incident, someone appears to have become so swept up in the misleading stories surrounding Kyra's death 
that they'd daubed her resting place with a falsehood. In June 2018, another high-profile murder of a young girl took place. The far right had long since moved away from interest in Kyra's story. For me, you know, it, it doesn't make any, any difference if it was a Russian or a Syrer, a Japanese or something like that, you know what I mean. My situation is not changing. My daughter is still dead. The, my life stops on this day and begins new. Back at the cemetery, Karen places the flower next to the white marble gravestone. The grave is an explosion of colour. Alongside the flowers are trinkets and cards, figurines and ice skating gear. In the distance behind Karen, there's a long grey building. It's the ice hall, where Kyra used to train. Karen was never a speed skater when Kyra was alive. But recently, she's decided to take her first tentative steps onto the ice and she can wear her daughter's skating clothes. They fit me, although we have a different figure, but um, they fit me, so um, also her shoes and everything. I'm fascinated before in in ice speed skating, but it was too cold for me and and, uh, too dangerous. But uh, now I try to learn it, and perhaps in 10 years I'm also an ice speed skater. I don't know where the way goes I'm, I'm just doing it because I want to be near and um, she likes it and I'm going now there for just to have fun but I'm not alone I'm going there with her friends so many friends of her come with me to, uh, to ice skating and we do it together just um, in memory of her That's it for this edition of the BBC Trending Podcast. My thanks to our reporter, Anza Dane, to our audio engineer, Neil Churchill, and to our commissioning editor, Steve Titherington. Get in touch with us via Facebook or Twitter, or you can email me. My email is michael.wendling at bbc.co.uk. Perhaps like me, you're always on the lookout for new podcasts. Well, if so, you should meet a couple of my colleagues. Hi, I'm Linda. And I'm Mercy. And we're the presenters of a new podcast from the BBC World Service called Parentland. I'm a mum of two and a portrait and documentary photographer. And I'm also a mum of two and a science journalist. (laughs) Parentland is a place you can come if you're interested in kids, why they do the things they do and how to make them do what you want them to do. So if you have any burning questions about raising a child, whether it's babies, toddlers, kids, teenagers... Parentland is the place to be. We're very much focused on evidence, so we're going to be speaking to scientists, researchers, doctors. Yeah, and this is a really global podcast, so we want to have questions from all over the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your culture has to say about it, we'll try as much as possible to tackle it. Yeah, because I think a lot of the issues parents face are global issues, they're universal issues, and so wherever you are, probably someone else has the same question. It could be potty training. How do I get my kid to sleep through the night? How to help your child do better at school? Anything that has to do with raising a child. Parentland's launching on February the 25th, but we want your questions now. So any questions you have about parenting, please send them to our email. Parentland at bbc.com That's parentland, all one word, at bbc.com That's it for now from us here at Trending, but we'll be back in your feed soon.